Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A listener to How Do We Fix It spoke with me this morning, and he said something that I wanted to pass on, which is most people he knows, and this goes for a lot of people I know, see discussion about the coronavirus crisis as a blaming opportunity instead of moving on and dealing with the present in in the best way we can. Right. Of course, it's always satisfying in the short term to find somebody to blame for every problem. And sometimes there really are people to blame. But we think the mission of our show is to help us first understand ourselves in the moment we find ourselves in and maybe lay the groundwork for building for the future. This episode, Turning Outward, Transforming Our Communities with Rich Harwood. The more we step forward to take these types of actions, to reduce polarization, to connect with one another, the greater sense of control we will begin to feel again over our lives and our ability to shape our lives. If those things come out of this, it would reignite a sense of possibility and hope in our country, as opposed to the shape we were in before this pandemic occurred. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix it? it? How do we fix it? We're several weeks into the crisis that we find ourselves in, all of us. How's it going for you, Jim? What's what's changed in your life? Well, I've got my kale and my parsnips and my carrots planted. My tomato seedlings are coming up, so I think I'm going to make it through the next few months. I'm doing a lot more Zoom calls, WhatsApp, Facebooking than I usually do, which is a good thing and and, and a way to keep up with friends who I haven't spoken to in some cases for, for weeks or months. But many people right now are also fearful, even angry, perhaps panicked. Um, with this crisis. So today we're going to discuss a positive response, a way to move beyond fear and turn outward. Rich Harwood is our guest. He's president of the nonprofit Harwood Institute for Public Innovation. The group works to bring positive change to local communities. It's active in all 50 states and 40 countries around the world. Rich is the author of the book, Stepping Forward, A Positive Practical Path to Transform Our Communities and Our Lives. He joins us from Bethesda, Maryland. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? It's good to be with both of you. So, Rich, this is a very strange time we're now in with the coronavirus, and we're all in it together. How can we cope in a more creative and hopeful way as opposed to just being fearful? 
Well, first, I think we have to make the choice that we are all in it together. I think with the emphasis on social distancing, we can interpret that as we need to separate ourselves from one another, that we need to hunker down. And I fear at times that for some of us, we might interpret that as we need to turn our backs on one another. So first and foremost, I think we need to make the fundamental choice that the only way we get through this is if we act and engage as a community together moving forward. Rich, you lead the Harwood Institute. Do you have like an elevator pitch to explain to people when you meet them what it is and what you do on a day-to-day basis? Sure. We're developing public innovators and organizations in communities that are turned outward toward their communities, who know uh, what matters to communities and can come together and create change in a way that restores people's belief, creates a culture of shared responsibility, and where we can demonstrate that real progress is being made over time. In what ways does our fear manifest itself? Well, I think we are anxious about our jobs. We're anxious about our individual and family health. We're anxious about our public health. We're anxious increasingly about the future of the nation's economy. And, you know, the more fearful one becomes, the more one hunkers down. It reminds me of when we were all kids and we would get scared when we thought the monster was under our bed or in our closet. We'd put the covers over our head and uh, and hopefully uh, things would disappear. That's not going to work in this situation. Now the monster's on the doorknob. or the... That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. The monster's all around us and we can be fearful of it or we can decide to face up to it. You know, we came into this Um, When our politics was polarized, we had become increasingly tribalized. We had divvied ourselves up. No one liked what was going on in the country when I travel across the country talking with folks. And this is a disruption. And we get to choose whether or not we're going to come out of this disruption in better shape than when we went into it, or whether or not we're going to come out more polarized, more separated, more divided than when we came in. And even at this time of great anxiety, your organization remains really hopeful in its messaging. And one of the things that you say a lot is that the really important changes happening out there are happening in local communities, not in state capitals or Washington, D.C. Tell us about a community that you're particularly excited about right now. Well, I'm excited, first of all, about what's happening in communities all across the country in terms of the response to this pandemic. I mean, right in my own neighborhood, for instance, people have organized to make sure that seniors and other folks who are shut in their homes have access to food, that their prescriptions are being delivered, that they're getting regular calls from people, that they're not getting isolated and falling prey to loneliness. These are all incredibly important things. And I think, Jim, what we're seeing are these types of examples bubbling up all across the country right now, which which is actually something I was talking about before this pandemic occurred. And I think it's more visible now than in the last five or 10 years that I've been doing this work. You grew up in a family that was dedicated to public service, and you were also sick as a child. How did that experience inform your work that you're doing now? Oh, gosh, it it informs every part of it. 
Um, I was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis as a young child in the 1960s. That was a death sentence for sure. I grew up in hospital beds for much of my youth and a lot of my young adulthood. I learned firsthand what it's like to have your dignity stripped from you, to be invisible to the doctors and nurses and the specialists all surrounding my bed, talking about me, but never talking to me about having false promises made to me that I would get better when in fact I was getting worse. And what I learned from this is what it feels like to have your dignity stripped from you. What I learned from this is what it feels like to have a sense of false hope about your future and when tomorrow will not be better than today. And ultimately what I learned was when people surrounded me and lifted me up to make sure I wouldn't fall through the cracks, what I learned was the power of community and the innate capacities that people have to solve problems and make a difference in one another's lives. And so you're saying we should reach out to other people. Yes, absolutely. This is a choice we get to make, and it's a fundamental choice. And I think we need more leaders uh, at the local level, at the state level, and particularly at the national level, who are encouraging us and challenging us to step in, to lean on one another, to engage with one another, to see and hear one another. And there's not nearly enough of that happening right now. Rich, you're no stranger to really extreme and, and horrific, tragic situations. After the school shooting in Newtown, Connecticut in 2012, where 26 people died, you you went there and you led a discussion about the school building. What was that like? Uh, it was harrowing, honestly. It was tough. I mean, here was a situation where 20 first graders and six adults were massacred in an elementary school. The community at the time was traumatized. There was a big debate, Jim, as you probably remember and your listeners remember, about whether or not it was even time to have a discussion about how to move the community forward. The community was split on that. And here I was, an outsider, being asked to come in and help the community come together and make a decision about what to do with their school building, which I soon learned was not really a discussion about their school building at all. It was about whether or not they could pivot from trauma and despair to healing and hope. I remember listening to families of victims who lost their children. I remember listening to families of survivors. I remember engaging people who went to that school who didn't want it to close. I remember listening to teachers talk about their experiences and hearing the gunfire rattle throughout their hallways and hearing their stories about stowing kids in bathroom stalls and in supply closets. This was a community that was very fragile. And here's the thing, they summoned the courage and the ability to step in and lean in and to move forward as best they could and make a decision about moving forward. And and what happened in those sessions? Did people start coming together easily or was it a protracted process that was really very difficult for you to reach some kind of consensus and healing? I think it was it was it was protracted. It happened over a number of months. Uh, there were divisions on this task force that was charged with making the decision on the day, in fact, that we were uh, announced that we would make a decision. A bunch of teachers, 30 teachers, released a letter saying that under no conditions would they ever go back into that school. 
and it looked as though the entire thing would collapse. Um, up until the very last moment uh, in our last meeting, what became our last meeting, it appeared as though that we would remain divided and would not be able to make a decision. Um, but ultimately, I think people came to the realization that either this community would remain divided and not move forward, or people would have to find some kind of compromise and reach some kind of decision in order to move forward together. And that's what they were able to do ultimately. And, and, and what was the decision? The decision ultimately was to tear down the school building, rebuild on that site, change the footprint of the building so it had a different orientation. So it wouldn't seem like just mimicking the old building and then bring kids back into that new space and move forward as a community. And that's, that's in fact what they've done. And as you look back at that community that was filled with, with anger and, and utter despair, what was the tipping point? I think in all these situations, whether it's Newtown or my work in Flint after they had lost 30,000 auto jobs in a short period of time, I don't know, Richard, if there's a single tipping point as much as there is an arc. And the arc looks something like this, that first of all, you can't gloss over what happened. You have to give people space to express their sorrow, their frustration, their anger, their anxiety, their fears. And too often in our country, we simply try to floor the gas and move forward. Or the second thing that happened is we had to pivot from our sorrow to what is it that we're for? And in talking about what we're for, it couldn't become a utopian vision that we couldn't take action on. It had to be a series of aspirations that came from people's gut that were concrete and meaningful and that were actionable and achievable. And then thirdly, in each of these cases, one needed to start to take small steps forward to rebuild trust, to regain confidence, and to begin to change the narrative of the community that, in fact, we could move forward together. What does that say to the current crisis? Are you worried that we will just hit the gas pedal and, and move on too quickly? Well, I think if you look at lots of natural disasters or man-made disasters, that's exactly what we do. We try to forget, right? We try to, we try to erase it from our memory and pretend it didn't exist and just keep moving forward. And in fact, we don't take the time to build stronger communities. My hope is that we will recognize that there are all these things bubbling up from local communities which are tapping into our innate capabilities to take action, that people are finding new ways to connect online that demonstrate that we can actually change the norms of how we engage with one another, that people are beginning to see that, yes, we need large institutions, but we also need local action in conjunction with those large institutional actions. All of these things are ingredients, I think, for us to take a different path forward than the one we were on before this pandemic occurred, which just to remind us, we were polarized, dividing into tribal units, grievances were everywhere. It was very difficult to get anyone to talk about what they were for. It was mostly about what you're against and how you wanted to pull the other side down and impugn their motivations. We have the opportunity to shift directions now fundamentally and get on a different course. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. And we're speaking with Rich Harwood of the Harwood Institute. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Well, we've all got plenty of time for movies and music and reading these days, Richard. I'm sure you have some sort of recommendation for our listeners. Yeah, a, a couple of things. Both Andrew Yang and Joe Biden have just started podcasts as a way of trying to claw their way back from being uh, thought of as irrelevant in this current moment with all the focus on President Trump and, and the governors and the elected officials and their statements. And what I think is interesting about both of them is to see whether their podcasts are merely just uh, uh, – blandishments or simple statements, or whether they use that opportunity to really uh, speak from the heart and the soul. Well, I'm always interested in anything Andrew Yang has to say. Having met Joe Biden a couple of times, I'm, I'm less intrigued, but here's hoping that he can make a go of it. And now back to our interview with Rich Harwood. In so many cases, when a major issue like this pandemic being an extreme example, when these things come up, so many of us immediately move to who's in the White House. You know, what does it mean for our politics? And yet you often say electoral politics won't save us. Right. What do you mean by that exactly? I think one of the fundamental issues in our country right now is whether or not we can restore our belief in ourselves and one another that we can come together and get things done. We're working in Clark County, Kentucky right now, where there's an opioid crisis. The kids feel abandoned. Religious leaders are sowing division. We could pass legislation all we want in Frankfurt and Kentucky or in, in Washington, D.C. about the opioid crisis. But you know what's restoring belief in that community? It's two women who were in recovery themselves who came together and created a coaching program to coach other people in recovery to ensure that when people overdose on drugs, they're at the emergency room making sure that those folks get good treatment, that they're not just released, but they're put into treatment, drug treatment, and that there's a social network of people who surround them to ensure that they can get through treatment. That's going to happen locally. We can design programs, but we still have to do it locally. And in Clark County, Kentucky, a community that was stuck for 20, 30 years, they're seeing more progress now over the last two or three years since we've begun working with them that they've seen in the past couple of decades. It's because it's starting locally and building. Can I ask you about 
a barrier, an obstacle to community in many parts of the country. There's been some very interesting columns written recently and a book, too, by uh, Nicholas Kristof of The New York Times, who just a few days ago said we're now all focused on our coronavirus pandemic, but we also face a loneliness mm -hmm. pandemic across the industrialized world. And and I wondered about that, as, as, that loneliness epidemic. I think it's, you know, again, going back to Clark County, the kids we talk to there all go to a blue ribbon school designated by the governor and by the local schools. And yet when we talked to those kids, Richard, what they told us was how lonely they felt. They told us about how they felt abandoned by adults in their community. They told us that they didn't have people looking out for them. There are adults in that community who are battling the opioid crisis, who feel abandoned by religious leaders and political leaders and by their neighbors uh, who are who are suffering from loneliness um, and feel isolated from one another. So I think one of the things that I think this gets back to the point I was making about restoring belief. I think this belief goes to do I believe that I'm in this by myself where I have to go it alone on my own? Or do I believe that community is a common enterprise? Do I believe that others see and hear me and what matters to me matters to others? Or is what matters to me only important to me? I think these are fundamental questions about the ways in which we're living our lives today in our communities and in this country and combat the kinds of challenges we've been talking about uh, today. You say you're working with people in these sessions to turn outward. Could you give me just one example of, of how you do that, how you perhaps turn someone around or change their mind in the way they're thinking? Sure. Uh, let me give you one really easy one. If I ask you, what's your aspiration for your community? And you begin to tell me, I want kids who are succeeding. I want a safer community. And then I begin to ask you, so what are some of the things that are in the way of meeting those aspirations? And you say to me, well, we're too divided in this community. There's not enough trust. Too many organizations are worried about their own survival and not dealing with these issues. And then I ask you, so where do you come out in terms of how you're operating? Inevitably, what people will tell me is actually I'm contributing to the very challenges I've been describing in terms of what's blocking us from achieving our aspirations. That's the simplest example I can give you. But what's interesting about it, that simple example works over and over and over again. And people begin to see that they themselves, not everyone else, but they themselves are going to have to change how they operate and do business if we're going to get their community on a different course. In this crazy time that we're all living through, this era of social distancing, one thing it means is that we all have a little more time for, let's hope, some reflection, not just binging Netflix, <laughs> and, and maybe for making some new kinds of connections. Once it's all over, how do you think this pandemic will have changed us as a people? What I hope is that it will help us remember something we already know, that our polarized politics is in the way of us moving forward, that our social connections with one another are really pivotal to our not only our civic, but our personal health, that 
we have the innate capabilities to take action together. Yes, we need government action. Yes, we need action from the federal government. That's all important. I would never diminish it. But that we also need, in conjunction with that, local action. And that the more we step forward to take these types of actions, to reduce polarization, to connect with one another, the greater sense of control we will begin to feel again over our lives and our ability to shape our lives. If those things come out of this, it would reignite a sense of possibility and hope in our country, as opposed to the shape we were in before this pandemic occurred. You say there are three things, if we are fearful or or angry or panicked, three things we can do to respond. Breathe, be wakeful, and be intentional. Can we just quickly walk through those? Sure. You know, when we all get scared, you know, I remember you asking me about when I was a child with cystic fibrosis or when I was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, I would stop breathing. I was so fearful. I think when we're all anxious, when we're all fearful, we don't even recognize it a lot of times, but we stop breathing. And what it does is that has a physiological effect on us and it increases our anxiety and sends certain chemicals through our bodies. And so the first thing I think when we become fearful is we have to remember to breathe. It calms us, it centers us, it grounds us. Second, wakefulness. I think when we become anxious, we hunker down, we pull the covers over our head. But here's the thing. The only way in which we're going to get through this is if we're a community. And if we see and hear one another, we're attuned to one another. And to do that, we need to be wakeful. Our eyes need to be open. Our hearts need to be enlarged. And that requires a certain kind of wakefulness. And then lastly, intentionality. Intentionality is about making more explicit intentional choices, which requires discernment. The more you do that, the more sense of control you feel over things, the more sense of agency you feel, the more ability you feel to affect things. Even in your little sphere of influence in your family or with your neighbors, you can begin to feel a greater sense of control, a greater sense of agency. You can feel less scattered. You can feel like you're acting with greater purpose and meaning. Rich Harwood, president of the Harwood Institute. Thanks very much for joining us on How Do We Fix It? Thanks so much for having me. A very strong emphasis from Rich Harwood, Jim, about local communities. He's really talking about um, what we can all do uh, with the people we know, with our neighbors, as opposed to just blaming or relying on the federal or state governments to act. Yeah, I think that that's been such a big theme on our show going back to, well, some of our earliest episodes, really. But I'm thinking in particular of our episode with James Fallows, who wrote the wonderful book, uh, Our Towns, about what was happening in overlooked communities and towns all over the country, this kind of revival that starts at the grassroots. It, that alone is not enough. You know, we need a competent federal government too, but I do believe that a lot of times some of the best ideas and the most innovative responses are more bottom up than top down. Yeah. And something we're not doing on our podcast is, is the blame game. Why is that? Why have we decided to uh, to hold back for now in judging who's 
who screwed up on this crisis? Yeah, well, there'll be plenty of time for that, and there's plenty of screw-ups to go around. But, you know, I've done a lot of work on disasters and man-made disasters. And one thing that always happens after a man-made disaster is, is almost immediately everybody circles around and they say, oh, my God. What idiots those guys were at NASA. I can't imagine how they made that incredibly dumb decision that any jerk could have seen was a terrible idea. In fact, when you go and examine these decisions, whatever they are, you find out that the actual situation was more complex. Everything looks simple in retrospect. So we're zipping our lips and, and holding our fire for, for now. now. For now. Listen, if you think that every big screw up can be explained by just a handful of evil or profoundly incompetent people and that you would never make any sort of mistake like that. I think you're underestimating how complex the real world is and how so many problems have all kinds of complex antecedents. So yes, people do screw up. There are evil people, but giant problems don't just emerge overnight because of one or two bad decisions. They're usually years in the making. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. <laughs> and that's our show for this week. We're a production of Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. If you want to make a podcast, check us out at DaviesContent.com and send an email. Our producer on this show is Miranda Schaefer, who uh, does a great job of not only making us uh, sound better with her edits, but also with uh, it, it's some extraordinary ability. I don't know how she does it. To, to make uh, the remote guests that we're, we're having on through this new system sound a lot better um, when you listen to them than during my, my first pass when I hear the recordings for the first time. Thanks, Miranda. And thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.